I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Paul Bradley Carr, a British writer, journalist, memoirist, and commentator based in Palm Springs. He's covered Silicon Valley for publications such as The Guardian, and his new novel is 1414 Degrees. On the show, we talked about the crossover from journalism to fiction, writing and alternating points of view, plotting versus pantsing, his new bookstore, and so much more. Before we bring him on, though, a little reminder. If in the 24 years that Writers on Writing has been bringing authors, agents, and poets to you, if you've gleaned anything from the show and have found it helpful in any way, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. We appreciate every bit of support, no matter how small. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing now for the show. Paul, I'm so glad to talk with you. I would love to begin with you telling our listeners about 1414 degrees or 1414 degrees, um, however you pronounce the title or how um, you like it. Yes, to be- I've, I've no idea how you pronounce the title. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I pronounce it 1414 degrees, but I think that's just because it's because uh, it's easier than saying 1,414, which sounds like a, a mouthful. Although the uh, the German edition is coming out early next year, and I can't even begin to imagine what a mouthful it is in, in German. So, um, yeah, so um, so it's a, a novel that I, my first novel, and it's, um, how to describe it? It's a book about Silicon Valley, but specifically a serial killer, apparent serial killer, I should say, who is targeting some of the worst, most awful tech billionaires um, that have ever lived. Um, somebody is is apparently bumping them off in in quite imaginative and almost invisible ways. So that's um, that's that's the plot. The uh, what it really is though is a sort of culmination of my twenty something years as a journalist writing about Silicon Valley and wanting to tell a Silicon Valley story that is more true than nonfiction would allow me to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say from the start, from the first couple of chapters, you introduce the situation or conflict, which is something is going quite wrong in Silicon Valley, and especially with this one particular company and how investigative journalism is also corrupt or trying to be anyway. And so I wondered if you found that sort of corruption um it sounds like you did, that you found it in Silicon Valley and so could not write it as nonfiction. Yeah, I mean, I so a bit of background on me. I was a I was the Silicon Valley columnist for the Guardian newspaper in London. Then I moved to the US and became a, an editor at TechCrunch, which is one of the big sort of publications, online publications that cover Silicon Valley. Um, and I've I've also written a lot of books, sort of nonfiction books about Silicon Valley. So yes, I have seen uh, Silicon Valley from all of its horrible angles. And, and in the 20 years I've covered it, it has gone from, uh, I would say, mildly concerning to full-blown sociopathic uh, as an industry. And, and this will probably not surprise many, many listeners, many of your listeners who, you know, we've all seen the coverage of, of 
you know, what happens in Silicon Valley and what these companies are capable of. But um, hopefully, if by the time you finish reading the novel, you come to realize that it's a lot worse than you you thought. And, and what's been interesting for me is how many Silicon Valley people have said to me after reading the book, oh, yeah, this is the first book I've read that really gets across. Like, I want to give this to all my friends to explain what it's really like, which is absolutely terrifying because it's a thriller murder mystery uh, where a lot of people die and a lot of terrible things happen. And if that's the book that Silicon Valley people find the most believable, I think we're all in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, you know, I guess there's no need to ask you why you didn't write this as an expose, but I'll write it. Any I'll ask you anyway, why didn't you write it as an expose? Well, I tried to. I, I wrote a proposal um, which my then agent, not now agent, my previous agent, who is a nonfiction uh, sort of specialist agent, sent around to every single publishing house um, that you can name, and then some. And now this was about, gosh, this was about eight or nine years ago when I tried, when I thought was thinking about writing it as nonfiction. And every single one of them wrote back and said, we we love the, I mean, we love the proposal. Like, you know, the, the, they always have to say something nice. And it was like, we love the proposal, but <laughs> but if um, if this is if if this is true then we could never publish it because it basically was just me saying, all right, I'll just tell you the things I've seen here in Silicon Valley and, um, and, and the things I know go on and the things I know people do. Um, and yeah, they basically said, if this is true, we could never publish it. It would just be sued into the ground. And I'm just kind of annoyed by this because I don't like if this is true. I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm a, I've been a journalist for 20 years. I, I've written many sort of stories about Silicon Valley, many thousands. And I don't think there's ever been an implication that that anything I've reported on isn't true. But I think what they really meant was this is so unbelievably bad as as stories go that we are, we have to believe that it's not true. But if it is true, there's no way any of the powerful people who are de depicted in this in this nonfiction proposal will allow us to publish it. Um, but but that was sort of when I realized something that I've I now understand about fiction, which is which is fiction allows you to tell the truth much more readily than nonfiction. And people are more, more ready to believe fiction than they are nonfiction. That was the real surprise to me. When you write something terrifying and horrifying as nonfiction, people say, this can't be true. This can't be true. <laughs> when you write something terrifying and horrifying as, as fiction, they say, is this true? This seems true. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's a very messed up thing that we have as human beings where we want to doubt nonfiction and we want to believe fiction. But for me, it's worked because it means... Um, I'm able to tell, and I'm not, and to be clear, anyone reading for anyone reading the novel, it isn't literally a true story. I didn't just write something down and change the names. It is a piece of fiction, but every single thing that happens in it is something that either I have seen happen, heard of happening, or could extrapolate from what I have seen and heard happening to, to be perfectly plausible. Hmm. So I'm curious about a line at the very start of the book. It says the following is a work of fiction. Is that because you're known as a journalist um, and a memoirist? It's because, um, yes, in part. Uh, but, but then again, I would hope people would sort of see it in the fiction shelves and think this is a novel. It's more because um, I, there are plenty of people, because it's so, um, because it's so based on my, my own experience in Silicon Valley, there are plenty of very rich and powerful people who I think will recognize themselves in the book, not deliberately, just because it's the funny thing about um, people who do terrible things. When they read about other people doing terrible things, they start to wonder if the book is about them. 
And I just wanted to make very clear that, no, this is, as I just said, this is not a story that is literally, I'm saying, happened. This is based on things I've seen, but I will not be surprised if people in Silicon Valley read it and recognize things that they have either done or considered doing. And I just want to make very clear that that's on them. <laughs> if they recognize themselves in it, that's <laughs> something between them and their conscience, because this yeah, 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 a yeah. made up story. Well, I was going to ask um, if anyone you worked with or covered um, in Silicon Valley read the book, and if so, what their response has been. Uh, yes, yes, many have. Um, and the well, I would hope that the people who I'm still in, in regular contact with are not horrible people. So the ones I, you know, I, I, I don't really make a habit of making friends with terrible people. So <laughs> the people who are my friends have all come to me and said, I cannot believe you wrote this book because this is, this is what, this is how it, how it is. And this is what it's like. And oh my gosh, um, I have heard anecdotally that certain other people who you would recognize the names and companies of have read it and are very displeased by this book because they feel, they feel strongly that I must have based it on them, which again, given it's a book about sociopaths who do who commit murders and other sort of very serious and terrible crimes it is it is troubling to me that they recognize themselves in those characters but there you go <laughs> well does it worry you that these <laughs> that not in the slightest no yeah. like, no as a journalist well this is the thing is i spent like i said spent 20 years as a journalist we were threatened with more lawsuits than most people have had hot breakfasts mm -hmm. and never once never ever once did any of them prevail because um, because uh, the, it's all true. I mean, as in the stuff we wrote as, as journalists is all true. This is a work of fiction. And if somebody wants to put their hand up and say, I think that murderer is me, then again, <laughs> I'm happy to have that conversation with them in a court of law as to why they would possibly identify with a serious, with a sociopath. <laughs> no, I, I mean, there's, a, there's even a quote right at the front of the book, um, which sort of indicates why I'm not worried. Um, there's a quote right, right at the front, which is from... Um, an executive at a big, very famous tech company who is quoted saying that they were going to spend a million dollars to um, go after a journalist's family and that they would hire investigators and do all this stuff to silence them. It's just a horrifying quote. And the quote is true. The quote was said on the record by a Silicon Valley executive. And they were, and it, they were talking about my partner, my girlfriend, Sarah, who uh, we were both journalists. They literally, these companies have threatened to do these, have threatened to spend millions of dollars to to go after us because of our reporting. This has all been sort of widely reported. Um, they've, they've tried to make us stop tell, telling the world how terrible they are for many years and it's never worked now. So if they if they want to take another swing at it, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm always <laughs> happy to have the conversation because there's a reason why um, the most powerful billionaires on earth haven't quite figured out a way to, to sue us yet because we don't, whatever, what, whatever we're saying is not only true, but it's not even scratching the surface, sadly. Mm hmm. Well, the book is written in alternating points of view, um, third person. What was the decision around that? Um, I well, so the, the not writing it, so writing it third person versus first person came down to um, as someone who's written memoir before, I, uh, I wanted to challenge myself to write fiction. Um, and I'd never written fiction before, by which I mean, not even a short story. I would literally never written fiction before. Um, but I know a lot of people who go from journalism or memoir into, into fiction right in the first person, because bluntly, it's sort of a bit easier. And it's easier to just essentially write yourself as the main character and just change the name. 
Um, and I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to fall into the trap of accidentally writing memoir. So I, I knew I was going to write it third person. I knew I was going to write it about a character who is of um, a different gender to myself. Um, and I and, and again, I wanted to do it in third person for that reason. Um, in terms of alter, alternating um, uh, sort of point of view, that I wanted to show... I wanted to open, so it opens with one of the victims and uh, sort of sitting in a hotel room feeling incredibly sorry for himself, but also feeling incredibly outraged that he has been the victim of this terrible thing. And I wanted to get across how these people justify their behavior and when cornered and finally made to sort of pay the price for their behavior, they are themselves outraged that this is possibly happening to them. There is no sense they've done anything wrong. And, and I thought the only way to get that across, that sense of outrage of these abusers and sociopaths and how they feel when they are finally held to account, was to write it in the, the third person, sorry, in, in that point of view. But then, of course, I wanted to switch back to my protagonist's point of view. But then also I wanted to switch to the murderer's point of view, mostly because I just really enjoy putting the murderer on the page very early and having the reader be in their head for a while and still hopefully not be able to figure out who they are. That just is, is something that I enjoy as a writer to like give the reader as much information as possible and hopefully still keep them guessing. Hmm. I, I really like Lou McCarthy, um, who is a point of view character and you write her rather well. And, um, is this so this is so you haven't written short stories so this is the first time you've written first piece of fiction I've ever written and, and so how did you do her so well well <laughs> first of all that's kind of you to say I mean I, it, it terrified me honestly because I mean as a as a man writing a female character it is just I mean there are entire like forums on the internet about how badly men write female characters like so I'm I'm always flattered and relieved when somebody says I did a decent job at writing Lou because I really like her as a human being and I think you know look, part of the secret is you 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 when men write women I feel like they write we we, we tend to make the mistake of writing them like they're, a, they're an alien species rather than the fact that they're just you know women are women and men are both people they, and they do similar things and they feel some way so, I, so part of it wasn't I didn't overthink it but the other thing was and, and I didn't try and write all those sort of weird cliches you see that that often men do when they write female characters um and, but but mostly it was I've witnessed the way that women have been treated in Silicon Valley and I as I said my partner Sarah is a journalist and I've spent years w alongside her when she's been attacked and sort of um you know for her for her work and and I think I've just come to sort of understand how terrifying and terrible the treatment of women and underrepresented people is in in Silicon Valley and in a lot of these sort of male dominated industries. And I think I just wanted to again. I think you can't write a story about Silicon Valley from a male from a white cisgender straight male point of view because we don't see most of it. People who see it are the women, are the people of color. So I had no choice but to kind of if I was going to tell the real story, it had to be told through the through the lens of someone not like me. But if you're going to write a story through the lens of someone who's not like you, you better work hard at getting it right. Otherwise, you're stepping on a thousand minefields. So I think trial, error and a bit of luck, I think. Hmm. Well, what's the carryover from nonfiction to fiction? What is the carryover? Yeah. What's the carryover? Um, so for me, it's it's. It's a really good question. And I, and I don't. 
Not as much as I expected, honestly. I expected it to be quite easy. I think a lot of people who write nonfiction think that fiction is just is just nonfiction, but without the you know with made up parts. And I don't think I don't think a lot of nonfiction writers who haven't tried fiction realize how unbelievably hard it is to create a believable world. Because when you do nonfiction, you can just say this is true, and people kind of either believe you or they don't. It's it's true. It's true. With non with fiction, you have to. The hardest thing for me, it's sort of, it's the not, I'm answering the, the question the wrong way around. I'm answering a non, a non carryover, but the non carryover for me was realizing that in nonfiction, I can tell you about a terrible person and, and how, what the awful things they do. And you don't ask me why they are that way. You just understand there are bad people in the world and they do bad things. In fiction, we have to really relate to even the worst characters. We have to understand why they are the way they are. And so for me, the hardest thing, the non carryover was if I'm writing a book based on terrible people in Silicon Valley, then I had to actually understand them. I actually had to spend a lot of time understanding what makes some of these sort of tech people that we all know and we all sort of, you know, dislike or fear, what makes them human? What is it that they fear? What is it that made them who they are? And, and for me, that was the sort of the non-carryover. In terms of the carryover, it's, you know, you just got to tell people a good story. You've got to keep people turning those pages and, and, and it's got to make sense and uh, you've got to get the balance right between telling people terrible things and making them laugh. <laughs> so otherwise they'll, they'll throw the book across the room or just burst into tears off the two pages. Hmm. Yeah, and the, the first line is, is uh, kind of grabs you. Joe Christian was missing his eyebrows. Was that always the first line? Um, it was... It was the first line for, for much of the book. I, I can't truthfully say it was the first line for the whole book because I can't remember. But as long as I can remember, that was the first line. And it just came, it just came out of nowhere. It was one of those when I was sitting down to write this scene about this guy who was, as I say, lost everything. Um, and I, I, liked the, I liked the concept that he was literally missing his eyebrows in that they were not there, but also he was missing them as in he, he missed them. He, wanted, mm -hmm. he, wanted, he was missing the days when he used to have eyebrows. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm a sucker for a, a bit of wordplay and it just really gripped me. And I thought, well, if it grips me, then hopefully it'll at least grip someone else to read the second line. Yeah, he, he lost everything, even his eyebrows. Even his eyebrows. And, and then, no, and what I like, not to go too deep for this, but it's like, <laughs> I did like the idea that up until it was like the eyebrows for him were the final straw. It was that like it's so many terrible things that happened to him, but but he just felt after his eyebrows were gone, that was it. I just thought that was that was a very sort of depressing moment. I could sort of almost I, I, can't, I can't really relate to Joe Christie in many ways, but I could relate to just that moment of losing everything and then looking in your eye in the mirror and seeing no your eyebrows had also burnt away and just thinking that's it. Mm. That's, that's the end now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about about uh, revision and how that went in a little bit, but I want to ask you again about the title, 1414 Degrees, which I, I gather is the temperature at which silicon melts. It is. It's the, the, whether you tell us that in the book or whether I looked it up or how it's, it's, it's mentioned in passing in the book. It's a blink and you, you might miss it moment towards the end of the book where one of the characters uh, has, a, has a USB stick that has it written on and she explains what it is. It's the, yeah, it's the temperature which silicon melts. And um, I wish I could take credit for it. It was actually my editor who um, mentioned this fact to me when we were doing editing. And I, um, and I just said, oh, that's, that's great. That's just such a nice, I like, the, like, I like the symmetry of the number. I like that it's this nice round number. And I also like that it's, um, 
I was really struggling with the title because I didn't want it. I didn't want to give it a kind of farcical title, but I also didn't want to give it a title that was so like I feel like every thriller about Silicon Valley has some terrible like it's called like net net negative or you know something's got some terrible pun in it about technology and I hate it so I was looking for a title that was just something a bit different and and it just all came together now has it has it been difficult for readers to find the book because of the title yeah, incredibly difficult. It was a terrible <laughs> title. Um, yeah, it's it's borderline impossible to. Well, so when the, the the truth is, it's it's got easier as the book has has. I'm pleased to say done done reasonably well. It now has you know a few reviews out there, and um, you know, uh, and so um, you you know, and it and and um, people people are writing nice things about it on social media. So I think the search engines have figured out that if people are typing in 14, 14 degrees, they might mean the book or, you know, and then similarly on Amazon for a while, it just didn't come up, even if you search for the exact title, because Amazon couldn't figure it out. And then of course, people don't know how to type a degree symbol, which is great. <laughs> so no, it's a terrible, terrible decision in that point of view. But fortunately, because Silicon Valley is so incredibly, you know, um, what's the word, just terrifyingly predictive in its technologies, it was able to figure out quite quickly that when people were searching for you know, 14, 14 degrees or, or, you know, just 14, 14, that they might well mean the book. So it's got, it's got easier, but yeah, if there was a period of about six weeks at the beginning where it was hopeless. I like, I like the graphic on the cover too. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, at what point did you see the cover and were you a part of creating the cover? I, I can take almost no credit for the cover. Um, it was designed by a man called Jamie Keenan in London, who is an incredible design, cover designer. He's, he's designed covers for people like Jeanette Winterson and Martin Amos and, and all sorts of authors that I, British authors actually that I love. Um, and he designed the cover and it was, he sent over an, he sent over, you know, for me to look at sort of various ideas, one of which a few of them were, were, were to me a little bit, again, like I think there's certain kind of almost cliched images that come with, with books about technology. And, um, but then in amongst them was this, um, was this, this image of this um, USB stick with a, with a scorpion sort of integrated into it. And I said that, I just love that. I love it, love it, love it. And he, he said, oh, good, because that was someone I liked too. But I think he had, he had thought that, that, we would all probably want there to be cliche tech stuff, which he didn't want to do. But he kind of did that thing of throwing in one curveball that he actually liked in there. And, and I liked it too. So that was, that was that, but it was all Jamie's work. And I love it. It, it, it so sums up perfectly the, the, it, for those who haven't seen it, which is going to be most people obviously listening to this, it's, you know, it's a, it's a sort of art, very silver, silver USB stick, like a memory stick with a, and drawn red scorpion tail and feet and things on it. And what I love about it is, is it, it makes the technology organic and dangerous because I think mm -hmm. we, we look at the technology, it's all smooth and shiny and wonderful. And we, we often, even when we think about how dangerous it is, we think it in very abstract ways, like you know, all for our privacy or for our data. And, and the book isn't really about those things. It's about people actually getting killed and hurt and damaged and abused which is what happens in Silicon Valley, unfortunately. And it's a very human story. So I liked the idea that it was, you know, adding the very real, very organic danger to something that I think we, we sometimes think is very safe because it's so shiny. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me as a reader, if it, if the cover had been, you know, all, you know, techie and, 
you know, typical, I probably wouldn't have been so attracted to it because yeah, I don't read those right? books. It's, it's, you know? I don't either. And no, and this has been, this is, this was something that is, has frustrated me about writing about Silicon Valley um, as fiction is, is yeah, unfortunately tech, the, the genre of techno thrillers is, is a great genre and people write amazing stories in them, but they all kind of are the, you know, they, they feel very samey to me and, and they also feel a bit, they don't get across the very real harms that are done inside Silicon Valley, particularly to women, people of color, other, other underrepresented groups. It's a very human industry behind it all and, and very human crimes get committed. It isn't all about, oh no, they've stolen the data, they're gonna set off missiles, all that sort of boys, toys, shiny you know crap. It is, there are people who work at these companies, people who are affected by these companies who, who, who suffer very real and human consequences. So yeah, I did not want someone to see it and think it was a, a, a techno thriller because that's, I don't, my, my preferred genre is, is whodunits and, and thrillers and psychological thrillers and things like that. And I wanted people to feel much more like it was one of those than a, you know, oh no, they've hacked into the Pentagon type. <laughs> BS, you know, who cares? Oh no, they've hacked into the Pentagon. So, you know, I'm sure they'll fix it. Whereas, whereas this is more, hopefully much more human. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, who are your influences? I mean, who do you read? Who do you, um, who did you grow up reading and, and uh, who influenced you in terms of the kind of writer you became? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm, a massive golden age of, of crime fiction fan, like obsessive Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, um, John Dixon Carr, like all the old school, um, uh, you know, um, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, uh, golden age of mystery folks. I love a whodunit. I love a puzzle. My, my absolute favorite genre is, is impossible crimes. Um, I, I love a locked room mystery. So, you know, so, so anything sort of John Dixon Carr, any of the sort of Japanese um, uh, impossible crime stuff, Christopher Fowler does really good ones now. Um, Sophie Hanna, I love Sophie Hanna's stuff where she does these seemingly impossible um, or inexplicable crimes, um, all of that stuff. And I wanted to hopefully get some of that into the mix uh, with this, like the idea of a crime that couldn't possibly have been committed. Um, <laughs> and I like, I, you know, but it, but it has to be, I'm, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of kind of either magical realism or, or, or those sort of impossible crimes that have these bizarre explanations that couldn't possibly happen. Like I'm very, I need everything that happens in, in books to be based on some kind of reality. So I'm, I also like Michael Crichton, things like books like that, where he takes science and turns them into very good or took, I should say, science and turn them into very good mystery stories and, and, and thrillers. So any, any of that stuff, but, but give me an Agatha Christie and I'm, I'm happy for, for, for hours. Hmm. Well, are you a plotter or a pantser? Did you know where you were going? Did you have like the major plot points, you know, set up? Did you know the ending? Um, talk about, talk a bit about the process of writing 14, yeah. 14 degrees. Uh, it was a, a mess of a, of a process. I wish I was a plotter. I wish I had any, um, I'm, I, I, I'm a frustrated plotter by which I mean, I, I'm not somebody who can sit down and just write a book. Um, as I said, this is my first work of fiction and it, it was a lot of trial and error. So I'm somebody who will, who will plot ahead 
and I'll think I know what the ending is and I'll think I know what the, what's going to happen. And then I start writing it and realize this makes absolutely no sense. Or one of my characters will have a much better idea than I did and sort of go off and do something. And I'll think, oh, well, damn it, I guess I'm writing something else now. And so <laughs> I'll then redo my plot and then I'll come back to it. And again, it will go off in a complete tangent. So I'm constantly trying to plot ahead and failing essentially at, at doing it. So, um, but I'm also, but I'm definitely not a pants. I can't, I can't do that wonderful thing that the people, other people can do of just sit down and follow my nose and end up at the end of the the, the year with a perfect book, unfortunately. Hmm. What about then when it comes to revision, how does that go for you? Do you have different, different things you're doing with each revision or are you, do you need to get like the first chapter perfect before you go into the second chapter? How, how does all that go? Yeah, I, do, I actually do very similar to what I, what I did with nonfiction there. What I'll do is I'll write, I'll write a chapter um, and um, then I'll, I'll, the next day I'll go back and edit that chapter and then start the next one. And then the next day I'll go back and edit that chapter and start the next one. That, that's in theory how I do it. Um, the, the, the caveat to that is if I get three chapters in and then realize that I'm going in a completely different direction, then I'll have to go back and start all over again. So I, I again, I wish I could just keep going through, but generally my, I edit as I go along so that by the time I've got a finished draft, it's actually in pretty decent shape, but it has taken me so many different mini journeys to get there. Like it's taken months and months of trial and error and going down rabbit holes and deleting stuff and trying again. But by the time I get to the end, I've pretty much got a, a manuscript. I, or I can't do that thing that again a lot of more talented writers can do, where they'll they'll just sit down and write one sort of you know vomit draft, as some of them call it. This one sort of just put everything on the page, get to the end, and then go back and edit, and suddenly they have a book. I, I have to each chapter, each section, make sure it all holds up and stands up. But I, I think part of that as well is the book is quite complicated. Like it, it's all the different moving parts have to fit together. You can't really make it up as you go along um, because because if you did, it, it, I'd have to be a genius, essentially. The only way it works is if I keep going back and saying, okay, I need to revise that because now that's happened. It has to tie in with this, which also means this. So yeah, a lot of trial and error. At what point do you give it to readers? Um, well, I have a couple of people, trusted readers. I have um, Sarah, my girlfriend, and I also have a, a sort of a mentor, um, you know, writing coach, um, Every, every sort of every I find that hard to find the right word for her because she does so many different sort of things to support my writing but but I, I have two people in my life anyway who who read as I'm going along and tell me if something's good or bad but nobody else until right until it's done I, I can't I don't have a writing group I don't share early drafts with people I've finished I, until I until I'm happy with it I can't show it to people I don't even like working on it on like a plane or a train in case someone's looking over my shoulder because I'm convinced they're thinking what is he doing terrible <laughs> and do you write directly onto the computer or do you ever write longhand or with a typewriter um i write um i do write directly into the computer but i make notes on paper i i all of my planning and plotting happens on paper i'm a massive pen and ink person so i'll sit and i'll scribble diagrams and I'll write ideas and I'll, I'll have conversations with myself on the page where I'll be like, does this make sense? Question mark. No, it doesn't. You idiot. Move on. And like, I'll have these conversations literally in my notebooks with myself as I'm thinking. <laughs> um, but then when I'm ready to write, I go straight to straight to word, mostly because I can't face the idea of 
writing around longhand than having to type it up. Typing just seems, is just my least favorite thing in the world. So I definitely don't want to have to do it, write something twice. Yeah, so how do you keep track then? I mean, because, you know, mysteries um, depend upon the plot working and mm -hmm. there's so many, as you said, moving parts. I mean, do you have, um, you know, is it really your notebooks, as you said, where you're keeping track of everything or do you have anything on the wall or, or uh, no, cards or... no, I don't do index cards. I don't do any of that stuff. I, I, you know, it always makes me feel like a fraud when I'm listening to sort of podcasts or interviews with writers and they talk about their, their note cards on the wall and their post-it notes and everything. I think, wow, you're, you're really good at this. No, I just, I just sit with my notebooks and I scribble things. And then I think perhaps because I grew up reading impossible crimes and mysteries and golden age of fiction stuff, I'm, I, I, I have a decent capacity to hold all the plot complexities in my head. Um, and so to me, you know, you, you probably have this as a writer, you, you know, when you're reading something, if there's an error, it just jumps out, you know, in somebody else's work, you read it. And you, if there's an error or a, or a sort of a bad turn of phrase or a typo, it kind of jumps out at you because it's just sort of, you're professionally trained to, to recognize um, stuff like that. I think for me, I have that with, with plots. If I'm, if I'm reading through something and, and something, doesn't fit with the sort of complex machinery that I've created for the plot. It just feels like a, a dumb, a, you know, a bum note in a, in a, in a, in a song. It just, it just jumps out at me. It's like, no, they couldn't possibly be, um, you know, there couldn't possibly be their knife because if it was that thing that happened 12 chapters ago, couldn't have happened. And we just saw them do this. So, so I think somehow I just keep it all in my head and then with notebooks as backups. Hmm, interesting. Well, I want to switch tracks a little bit because I want to talk about your bookstore that is opening in November. Um, yes. You live in Palm Springs, one of my favorite places of all time. And I became very sad when um, the bookstore, the dedicated bookstore closed. It was like, it's been at least a decade, I'm sure. Um, but I, I, you know, when my when Pen on Fire came out, I did an event there, and then shortly after that, it closed. And you are opening one, and I think it's the first one since then. Um, yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right. So I I moved uh, the, our family moved to Palm Springs. Well, we bought a house here nearly, you know, sort of a few years before we moved here. Like, like I know lots of people do. Um, but we moved here sort of permanently three or, three or four years ago now um, from, from San Francisco. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm originally from, from the UK, from, from London. And I'd always grown up in places that had multiple bookshops within, <laughs> within easy walking distance of, of any sort of centre of any city. And when, when we moved, when I started coming to Palm Springs more than a decade ago, um, there was there was one used bookshop downtown in that in a in a sort of strip mall, sort of um, down towards near the Ace Hotel that I I would go to. Um, it was good, but it was but there was no used bookstore. You had to drive out to to, to Barnes and oh sorry, no new bookstore I should say. You had to drive out to like Barnes and Noble in Palm Desert. It was mm -hmm. and I couldn't understand it. It just to me, a city like Palm Springs that has so much creativity, so many people coming in from places like LA and San Francisco and uh, and Seattle and all these other places where there are such vibrant literary and reading scenes, I, I just couldn't get my head around it. And I I spent so many years, uh, literally years, 
sort of bitching to people and saying, somebody needs to open a bookshop in Palm Springs. It makes no sense. Somebody who understands publishing, who, you know, loves books, needs to just, has, has maybe, you know, access to some, some, some capital to do this, needs to open a bookshop. And, and it's that, that thing where you say something enough times before it dawns on you that, that, that you are, that you could be that person. You just go, oh, <laughs> wait, somebody should do this. And I guess I, like, I'm, be the change you want to see. So no, I had no, I had no time to do it. I had no, uh, you know, no, um, it wasn't like I was drowning in money and ready to retire and thought, what can I do as a sort of dilettante project? It was, it was just that burning thing of you cannot have a city as incredible as Palm Springs with no bookshop. It's just wrong. So, um, so I, 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 Sarah and I just basically said, well, well, I guess we'll just have to do it then. And of course, there's nothing better than opening a bookshop. It's amazing you get to just buy books for a living and you get to create a space that hopefully will be very you know will be full of readers and and people who love love books as much as I do and and Sarah does and our children do so it's it's an incredible thing to be doing but it was something that I had not really planned um and also that didn't really feel like a thing that you could just do it feels like such a dream it feels like you know opening a bookshop is one of those things you dream about not you actually do um but uh, yeah, we're doing it, and it opens downtown, um, right, right in the middle of downtown, in uh, sometime in November. I keep telling people, hopefully by Pride, definitely by Thanksgiving. What's the name? It's called the Best Bookstore in Palm Springs. All right, because that's an easy, uh, an easy <laughs> claim to make. I, I feel bad if somebody opens a second bookshop in Palm Springs because I feel like we've <laughs> accidentally started a fight with them. But no, I mean, what else can you call the only bookshop in Palm Springs if not the best bookstore in Palm Springs? No, I'm so happy about that. I go out there a lot. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can find books and little shops out there, but yeah, not to have not a dedicated it's bookstore. Not, it's, oh, you, need, you need a place where you can walk in and and be around other book people. And, and sometimes it's not even about buying the books because you can buy a book online. You can buy a book from, as you say, a gift shop or, I mean, not a good selection necessarily or, or not, not a huge selection. I mean, not quality, I mean, quantity, not a big, a huge selection, but you can still buy books. But there's something about going into a place that is designed only to hold and, and share books. Even if you don't want to buy one, just to go in and read a book or be surrounded by them. It's, it's like the cure for whatever ails you. So, and I feel, it's kind of like, I feel like that that's Palm Springs anyway. It's like that place you go to when you, you just need to be surrounded by mountains and heat and everything. And I want to create kind of a micro climate of, of warmth and joy inside that already wonderful and warm joyous place now will it be largely mystery and crime fiction agatha christie or is it going to be like everything if it was up to me it would be 100 percent agatha christie but first of all <laughs> unfortunately she didn't write enough books but second of all i think that would be a little bit um self-indulgent <laughs> no it's uh, it is everything and and I'm actually just finalizing some of our opening inventory before we, I was, before we started, before we, we got on this, this conversation. And um, it is such a challenge to make sure that we are representing every, we can't stock every book, but we can represent every person. And that's what I'm, I'm struggling with. You know, that's the challenge, but, but one that I'm, I'm sort of hopefully, hopefully succeeding at is making sure that my, my, my aim is that whoever you are, and whatever your relationship is with reading, you walk into the shop and think, there's something here for me. And that could be a tourist who just wants, you know, some pool reading, doesn't want to overtax their vacation brain. They just want something great and entertaining to read by the pool. But it could equally be somebody who's going through a sort of traumatic 
time time in their life and needs help with it. It could be somebody who is, you know, very into a certain type of poetry or somebody, you know, who is a member of the LGBTQ community who is who thinks that, you know, most bookshops don't necessarily represent uh, that community well. And surely one in Palm Springs does. Um, you could, you know, and there aren't a huge number of children in Palm Springs, but there are lots, but there are, you know, there, there are children in Palm Springs and certainly many in the surrounding areas. And I want to make sure they also can come in and find something that's, that speaks to them. So it's a fun challenge, but, but um, it, it, brought, it forces me to broaden my own reading as well, because you can't just say, well, I'm not interested in, you know, whatever the true crime or, or I'm not interested in sports and I'm not interested in sports at all. So it's been a really interesting challenge to, for a British person who doesn't like sports very much to curate an entire <laughs> sports section. And I've, I've had a lot of help, let's say, a lot of people who do know these things helping me understand what the 100 best books on baseball are, for example. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you hear over and over again that people are not reading much. And yet I am seeing bookstores opening all over the place. And I find that really interesting. You know, it's like, well, are they or aren't they reading very much? You know, I mean, they, the are they, opening. they are. And this is, there's, it's such, it's such, and this is something that coming from Silicon Valley, having spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley is the tech people are always stunned when you say you're going to open a bookshop because they, because, because in their little bubble, who reads anymore? No one reads. Everyone's just on social media. And by the way, lots of people are on social media, but guess what? They're often talking about books. You know, book talk is a huge thing. Colleen Hoover can owes her her stratospheric sort of meteoric rise recently to TikTok. This people yeah. are using technology to discover books and they're buying these books in print. It's amazing. Print sales were up last year. They were up the year before. People are buying print books. They, they're using them to escape from, from the sort of horrors of the world, the horrors of technology. Um, no, reading is, there, there are certain groups of people, and unfortunately speaking as, um, you know, a, a straight white man, we are the demographic that doesn't read. We are the demographic who proudly doesn't read. And it drives me mad when I hear male friends of mine say, oh, yeah, I don't read. I don't read. And then when <laughs> they do read, they say, oh, yeah, I only read nonfiction. I don't like fiction. I don't like stuff that's made up. And you think, well, you're what's wrong with the world. You're why the... <laughs> you, you learn empathy from fiction you learn other people's experiences from fiction and if if I have any other goal in in you know I, in addition to creating a wonderful bookshop for Palm Springs my side goal is I want to figure out a way to get fiction into the hands of you know people in Silicon Valley people in other in other areas who 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 are incredibly powerful and and influential in our lives but don't read fiction because it is how you learn to be a human so but I'm also fine if people who don't want to read and don't like reading never set foot in the shop. That's okay because that just means there's more space for the rest of us who do love books and who do um, who do love reading. And I'm delighted to say, like both of our young daughters, in just adore and devour books. And half, no, not quite half, but a quarter at least of the of the responses I've had from people about the bookshop have been from young, young people younger than me, considerably younger than me, saying. I can't wait for the bookshop. I do, are you going to have young adult books? Are you going to have books for, you know, books for teenagers? Um, and the answer, of course, is yes. So I'm not, I'm not worried about reading. I am worried there are powerful, you know, that some of the most powerful people in the world haven't read a book in the last 20 years. That does trouble me as it should trouble us all. But, you know, that's that's between them and their conscious. I'm, I'm happy with the billions of people who do read. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm just delighted that you're opening this store. And uh... thank you. 
I, I can't wait for it. Um, okay, so I guess we're we're heading toward the end of our time here, and I and let's turn it back to writing. I wonder if you have any any uh, pearls of wisdom for the writer. Uh <laughs> for the writer, well, uh, <laughs> um, you, no, do I have My biggest pearl of wisdom is only that it's supposed to be really hard. Like I think whenever I hear writers ask me for advice, or you know, I've written, I've, I've published, I've, I've had published now more than a dozen books, and it never gets easier. Um, and and I always say to writers that you know when they're having these these moments of just you can't do this. I can't do this. It, I, I just like to remind them that every single writer feels that multiple times in every project. And if they don't, there's something either wrong with the book or wrong with them, because it is writing is very, very hard. You have to put your entire soul on the page. So so my biggest piece of wisdom is if it feels like you can't do it or if it feels like it's incredibly hard, that's that's how it's supposed to feel. And we all feel that way. And one of the troubles with the the problem is you only get to do interviews like this, this, you know, this, this really fun interview has happened because I've already written a book and I get to wistfully look back and forget how hard it was and just say, oh yes, I wrote that character. And then I did that. And I think there's lots of people who haven't written their first book yet who listen to those and think, well, everybody else is better at it than I am because listen to them talk about plotting and post-it notes and, and how they get up at 9am or 6am and they get their cup of coffee and then they write until noon and then they stop it. And, and the truth is, for most writers, it's nothing like that. For most writers, we have other lives going on. We're opening bookshops or going to work at Walgreens or whatever it is we do. And we we have days when we think we can't do it. And we have days when we feel like we're total hacks. And that's 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 actually the more common experience in writing. So I would just say, don't apart from this podcast, which is fantastic, don't listen to too many podcasts and, fit and judge yourself by the standards of writers who have already finished because the reason we get to sound so happy on these podcasts is because we've been through to hell to get here and crying in the corner and thinking we can't write. And then once it's all done, we feel relieved and we go on our publicity tour and, and sound like it's easy. So that's, that's my only pearl of wisdom is that it's all, everyone's lying. It's really hard. <laughs> and don't worry about it. And if, and if you feel like you can't go on, I promise you can just keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. Um, uh, that and also support independent bookshops. That's my other pearl of wisdom because, um, you know, I need, I need to pay the rent on this, on this shop that I suddenly own. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we'd love writers love bookshops and if we don't support them, they close and, um, yeah, but <laughs> I, I, and you know, I've got what I do have one pearl of wisdom though, for, for, for other bookshop owners, if I may, which is, yeah. Stop worrying. Stop. No, not stop worrying. Stop obsessing about Amazon. I. It is so. All I hear from it, other independent bookshop owners is is about Amazon and how well we. You know, we can't compete with Amazon and Amazon's. You know, just going to kill everything. And oh, I hate it when people come into the bookshop and they they say they can get it cheaper on Amazon. And it's like, you know, it's like they're saying Voldemort. And I, it. <laughs> Amazon is. Don't get me wrong. Amazon's. You know done some terrible things but also they've got books in the hands of lots more people so you could have the moral argument about amazon but but one thing i learned from silicon valley is if there's this big giant scary company that everybody uses but don't doesn't really like very much then that is a massive opportunity for other people to do it better and differently 
And the first, you didn't, you don't hear people say, well, Google is so terrifying and big and huge, so we shouldn't try and make search any better. Or, well, Facebook just owns social media, so why bother trying? If people in Silicon Valley felt that way, we wouldn't have uh, TikTok, we wouldn't have Instagram, we wouldn't have all the things that came after Facebook, which Facebook was so scared of Instagram that it bought Instagram because it couldn't beat it, so it had to buy it. And Amazon is scared of many, many things. Amazon tried to do retail and they failed. They tried to do bricks and mortar bookshops and they failed. They are not Voldemort, they're not indestructible, but the first step to beating them is to stop obsessing with them and hiding in the corner like they're the T-Rex in Jurassic Park and you have to just not move, otherwise they'll see you. Bookshops <laughs> can sell books to people and make people happier than Amazon ever can because Amazon is a machine, not a person, or not a series of people. So my my pearl of wisdom and prayer for people who run independent bookshops is to stop worrying about Amazon. Enjoy the fact that increasingly people are buying from independent bookshops again. Um, Amazon did us this huge favor by, by basically hobbling the massive bricks and mortar chains so that the playing field was more level, you know, in the in physical retail. And now we're seeing a resurgence to bookshops. So like, thanks Amazon for helping, you know, bring people back into bookshops by being so terrifying and big. And like now it's our turn to figure out how to beat them by just offering better service and making people happier. And, and we're going to do it. And Amazon's going to give up on books and go back to doing whatever it wants to do next. So just stop, stop fearing Amazon. We, we're, there's room for everyone. And also we're going to win this one. Mm. Paul Bradley Carr, wonderful talking with you. And, uh, and someday we shall meet. And I wish you continued luck with 14, 14 degrees and can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you. And we'll, well, we'll, I'll meet you in the bookshop. You'll go, we're going to have, have you in to do a signing of your incredible Palm Springs book. And also, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. This was a real pleasure. Big, oh. big fan of the podcast, big fan of your work. So this was, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Paul Bradley Carr, author of 1414 Degrees. Music and sound editing are by Travis Barrett. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host, Marie Stone, Travis Barrett, or me, email penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. See you next time.